Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Come on! Welcome to Soho Radio. Uh, if you've just joined us, we are here with Andrew Lauder and Mick Houghton, and we are celebrating the publication of a book called Happy Trails, Andrew Lauder's Charmed Life and High Times in the Record Business. Uh, written by, it was written by you, was it, Mick, or did you write it, Andrew, or you just talked to it? He, Mick, well, we just, we talked for, <laughs> for the best part of a year. Really? Every, every Friday afternoon about... We talked for about three hours. Okay. The only reason we stopped was because Andrew's phone cut out. <laughs> <laughs> the, ba- the, the battery, the battery ran, ran out, so that was it. Which was kind of good because we probably would have gone on for another three yeah, hours. Yeah. Well, I was I was at the uh, the the launch of the book last night uh, at the social, and um, Andrew can talk. He can't can. He, he, he can. can talk. <laughs> so yeah, um, <laughs> and we will we will talk today. There is. Oh, let me just tell you what we've just listened to. We, we heard three tracks that are associated with you. We heard "Help Yourself." The 13th Floor Elevators and Creedence Clearwater Revival. Uh, and then we heard a track by the Rolling Stones, Come On. Because the reason I played it, Andrew, is that in the book, you talk about that track as it was almost a bit of a, a road to Damascus moment, almost, hearing that tune. It was just like it blew your mind, didn't it? Well, it did. Uh, and it was had a, a connection to it because um, Andrew Oldham, who was managing the group at, at, at that time, had been expelled from the same school that I was at. <laughs> yes, of course. The year before. Uh, not that I knew him then, but uh, it was only when, uh, in the wake of his best friend, had the, the school group it was a guy called John Douglas. John Douglas and the Comanches. Right, OK. Extremely good. Wow. And um, Andrew had got expelled the term before. I think I think the school wrote to him. He, he said it was mutual. They <laughs> <laughs> said, we think Andrew could do well, but not here. Right. So um, he'd gone. And I didn't hear about him till the beginning of the summer term, 1963. Right. When the drummer in our group, who lived in uh, the, the west end of London, or uh, Ealing, I think, he said, oh, do you remember Andrew Oldham? And I said, no, who's, who's he? You know. Yeah. I said, oh, I bumped into him and we established who he was and what had happened. And he said, well, I bumped into him in this club in Richmond in, in the holiday and he's managing a group. Wow. I said, yeah, it's called the Rolling Stones. So and did you go over it. and see them play? Did you go see no, them play? No, I you didn't. Did. Oh, you you're know, joking. stuck at school. I mean, you're oh, you school. school. You're there eight months of the year. Yeah, so. of course. <clears throat> but... Um, Obviously, said they got they've got this record deal with Decker, and they have got a single coming out end of next month. So, right. you know, I bought it without even hearing it. Of course, and um, I thought, bloody, this is a bit good. So, was it was, was it that first Rolling Stones album that kind of led you to the blues? I guess absolutely, yeah. Uh, that was the beginning of '64, and uh, it, it was a whole another world that I knew very little about at that point. I guess being a young lad from West Hartlepool. There wasn't a lot of blues musicians kicking around at the, the local 
pubs Not and, a lot. and clubs no, other no, West Ham. There's a local group called the Heartbeats. I think the only one who became professional was the bass player ended up in the Roulettes. Right, which okay. was Adam Face backing group, but also made records in the right. 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 Uh, but uh, so you had to kind of work at getting the records. Yeah. Because you couldn't just wander to Bruce Moore's record shop and expect to find, you know, chess records, I mean, like, Howling Wolves I mean, and Little is it, Walters and things. Is it true that that's how Mick and Keith met? Because one of them saw the other one and had a blues record under so. his arm. Yeah. And it sounds a great story. Hopefully it's true. And yeah, just, I think because so. Because I, I imagine if you saw somebody with a blues record under their arm, they weren't, you, you knew you'd like them because if they got yeah. that record, you'd like them. And it was thought you thought you were the only yeah. one. Yeah, no, it was supposedly on Dartford Station, which is yes. kind of near where I, I was brought up in South East London. <clears throat> and, um, and it's funny, I'm three years younger than Andrew, as you can probably tell. Yes, I can really tell um, from where I am. Yes, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> but um, the Stones album had the same effect on me because it was just at that point when obviously the Beatles had happened and groups were being encouraged to write their own songs yeah and the stone album came out and i think i think it's all covers i think it's all it's it, apart from, it is apart all. from tell me i think which, right. which they kind of wrote probably um, <laughs> and um and that was this revelation it, it completely it was bucking this trend that was starting to happen yeah and then of course you, you know you got the yardbirds the pretty things the animals all the other groups also also basically picking up on the same repertoire as the stones are, 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 discovered really so yeah, i mean i never quite followed the kind of blues trail in the way that andrew did i mean that's uh, one of the overriding uh, things about the book andrew is your love of the blues i mean and you yeah, you, yeah. you 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 start there with the blues uh and we're going to play a, tr a track in a minute which is one of your all-time favorite tunes and you kind of ended up back at the blues as well didn't you like sort of in the final years of this way up and and then the the labels afterwards you kind of went back to the blues as well i mean it's it's yeah it's always been your true love hasn't it yeah, no, it, absolutely. Everything seems to stem from it, as far as I was concerned. So, um, why do you think that is? Is it is it just something about it that just you got it? I don't know. You just got yeah. It. I mean, uh, obviously, I missed growing up in the fifties. I didn't it, know about it at all. Yeah, you know, yeah. you heard the results of you know we heard rock and roll happening in fifty five, mm. fifty six, and uh, you know developing a love for you know Jerry Lewis and Little Richards and all the the huge rock and roll stars but i i kind of missed chess records and the cello records yeah. and i didn't know about those things until that first rolling stones album came out i see i never really knew i didn't it didn't really dawn on me until reading your book and seeing you talk last night and today that the rolling stones first album had such an impact on people i, I, I never really it, i never really joined the dots together no. but I, I, I could totally understand why and which leads us to a, a, this howling wolf track Smokestack Lightning, which uh, you talk about in the book uh, in reverential terms. I mean, I yeah. can't remember the exact quotes, but it's something like, this is the best thing since penicillin or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I, I thought this was just the most wonderful record. I, st I still do. I mean, it's still a fantastic atmosphere to it. It is an incredible uh, record. And I think what really comes across, and Mick, you'll, uh, you'll get this, is... Andrew's enthusiasm, not only for this track, but for music in general, comes across so much in the book, doesn't it? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I mean one of my favourite bits in the book is, is this idea of Andrew in his, in his bedroom trying to emulate Howling Wolf <laughs> and, and, and basically laterating his vocal cords for two weeks, you know. Well, let's, let's have a listen to Howling Wolf and then we'll let Andrew have a go again. Shining just like 
mad record that is. The Who, of course. Isn't that crazy, that record? Absolutely nuts. I mean, it, was, it was nuts at the time. It still sounds crazy. Unbelievable. I mean, it's just such a mad record. I know you didn't have anything to do with that, but that was a, that was a scene that you entered into, Andrew. So you, without going into too much detail, because people need to go and buy the book, and you should buy the book, because it's very, very good. Andrew, you, you moved down from Hartlepool down to London, got a job at the flipping flick of a switch and all of a sudden you were in this world of bands like the who and all this scene happening it was 1965 it was all starting to turn color wasn't it and it must have been a yeah. very exciting time all these little clubs dotted around london it was i mean and from where i was i was based in denmark street so i had the flamingo you know five minute walk yeah marquee beat city hundred club studio you know 51 you could be there in five minutes in different directions. I, you, but, I mean, you, you were sorry to You must have felt like this was, this was like Christmas every day for you because you've been such a music fan in Hartlepool, and, yeah. and music had driven you down here. You got here, and finally, you were surrounded by all these people that you were buying records of. Yeah. Well, the reason I heard about the the Who was from uh, there were two writers, uh, John Carter and Ken Lewis, who just having a hit that came out the week I came down, which was funny how love can be. And they used to, there was a sort of void in that when you walked in the door at Southern Music on your right, there was a, an area where there was kind of nothing, and then they had the trade, trade counter there. And they used to use that as a little meeting place. Right. And one day I was picking sheet music up out of the shelves, and I had to keep going where they were standing to get sheet music out. And in the end, I felt a bit sort of like I'm, I don't think I'm trying to listen to their conversation, <laughs> so I apologise. I'm sorry, guys. I'm, you know, everything's coming off the shelf. And he said, no, we're actually just talking about this record. that we, we, uh, Shell Town, we invited us down to come and play on this record by a group called The Who. And it didn't mean a thing. I had yeah. not heard the name at mm. all. And he said, oh, they're a really good live group. And uh, they just found out that the record was looking like it was going to be a hit. So it had quite a long gest gestation time from release right. to actually taking off. <coughs> and uh, they'd... Basically, we did the backing vocals on I Can't Explain, and wow. Harry Ford, the keyboard player, was on the record. So they said, yeah, they're you know, doing this residency at the Marquee every Tuesday night. Uh, go and, you should go and see them, yeah. you know, you like them. So I went the next Tuesday. The next Tuesday. And it was really that week that the record was taking off, so there was music papers that week, had lots of coverage, and I was reading it, and God, these guys sound a bit interesting, you yeah. know. And, and were they mind blowing? I mean, were they were they really that that mind blowing live? Oh yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, it was because you didn't know where to look. You know, we got Keith Moon going completely bonkers, and Townsend. You know, I plonked myself in front of Pete Townsend's Marshall stack with a Union Jack on it, and yeah. and Daltrey, you know, microphones flying over your head. It was kind. Of, I mean, I mean, this is this is obviously impressing you because you're a music fan. But um, we must uh, r remind everybody: you were only like you were 17 years old, weren't you? Yeah. yeah. You were. A, I mean, you weren't. You were a child, really, and you were there, let yeah. loose in the big city, running around all these bands. I yeah. mean, <laughs> I mean, it really must have been an incredible experience. Well, I, I'd have come down earlier if my parents had uh, <laughs> let me. But, but uh, it, because I had an older brother that lived in London, I thought they'd sort of made him a bit responsible for. Yeah. Keeping his eye on me, I think. And and then within like two or three years, you you end up doing A and R, which I guess was always the job you were destined to do. And you started yeah. working for um, a label called Liberty, 
Yeah. Uh, and then that turned into United Artists, didn't it? Yeah. Uh, Transamerica Corporation had bought United Artists in America, the film company publishing the record company. Mm. <clears throat> and then a bit later on, they decided to buy Liberty Records and in the hopes of sticking the two together and, and making a big record company. Yeah. But they were very, very different companies. One was very West Coast uh, and the other was New York based. Mm -hmm. uh, and they didn't really get on that well uh, at the start. And two very different sets of, of, of musical outlook. And UA obviously had film soundtracks and Graham Bond and Shirley Bassey and, yeah. um, sorry, James Bond films. And, um, and you, uh, Liberty Records had, had a background of you know Eddie Cochran, Janet Dean, Bobby V, mm -hmm. Fats Domino catalogue, and, and some very West Coast records. So it was, a, and we were obviously sitting there in England trying to make sense of yeah. <laughs> what's going on. Lots. Yeah, it must have been a, it must be quite a, a task really to get your head around it. But but you were obviously being a fan, you were very capable of taking all this and just you were just I imagine you were just soaking up all the music and all the information, learning. Everywhere you're going, everybody you meet, because eventually you're going to get that that position, which you did get at UA. And yeah. you know, by by the time you're 20 year old, you were doing A and R. I mean, you were actually being an A and R man, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it was in 1970. So I'd be 21, just turning 22. Oh, old, old, yeah. so old, old, terrible. Old, old, yeah, old school. <laughs> and. Uh, uh, and yeah, that was that was. And uh, what's fantastic. what's what's really wonderful about the book is that uh, there's obviously there's all the great bit about you being at home, and then you're moving down to London, and all the mad things that happen when you first get here. All these great groups you see, like the Who, but then you start running UA, and it's like this seems to be a really exciting time for you for the next sort of seven, eight, nine years. <coughs> yeah, you're really just working with this, some amazing artists, and your love for these artists it goes very, very deep, and uh, you kind of built a lot of people around you and uh, I think one of the things and Mick mentioned this last night at the launch is that one of the things about you Andrew is that you kept friends with all the artists and you kept them you kept putting records out by these people because one yeah. day they were going to stick and one of the ones I was going to play a track by uh, the Groundhogs can you tell me a little bit about the Groundhogs well yeah I was a fan I, I knew about Tony McPhee about yeah 1964 Mike Vernon had put out a single <coughs> as T.S. McPhee and, and I was aware that they were backing visiting blues artists and things, particularly John Lee Hooker, right. who I was a big fan of. <clears throat> and uh, I went to see John Lee at, at Flamingo, backed by the Groundhogs. I was really impressed by the Tony McPhee really knew what John Lee was doing because his timings are different. He's not 12-bar blues. He's, you know, he's seemingly random sometimes, but, but Tony really knew what he, was, what he was doing. And John Lee really appreciated... Tony's playing, and uh, in fact, his uh, Calvin Carter, the uh, producer of John Lee and Jimmy Reed, and for VJ Records, did produce a record by the Groundhogs, which never oh, came out right. in England. And uh, that's what led me meeting the manager. He, I said, "What? What's Tony doing?" He said, "Oh, he's a telephone engineer. Wow. So, you know, if he puts together a new Groundhogs, I'll sign them." Yeah. So and, he did. Uh, Two weeks later, we had we had a Groundhogs again. Right, so uh, I'm going to play a track, uh, Thank Christ for the Bomb. So when where does that lie in the, the Groundhogs? It was canon? the third album that we put out, but it was the first one that really charted and, and right. became a big album. Which is uh, great because, as you just said, it was their third album. Bands don't get that chance these days, do they? A lot of the no. times, you know, and it's a uh, Mick. I mean, you must know that a lot of the artists you've worked with over the years 
uh, and also, you know, through knowing Andrew, it's things, you know, obviously I, I, I don't want to talk about how things are different then and different now because things change and evolve, but one of the notable differences is that there seems to be a lot more longevity back in the 70s. I think record labels and record companies like Andrew stuck with artists a lot longer, yeah. didn't they? Yeah, I mean, so bands I'm associated with, like Echo and Bunny Men, Theatre of Explodes, you know, it was, it was the third album, usually. Yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting yeah. that punk almost changed that because you suddenly had um, a group like Stranglers who nobody knew about. I mean, I think the first single almost charted, but the next one was top ten, wasn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. Because the, everything, was, everything became geared towards singles again, which it, through the 70s and all, all the kind of bands Andrew's associated with... Their album at, bands. At UA, their album bands. Yeah. I think I think Feel Good's started to change that, and then then obviously punk happened, and um, it became about singles again. Well, let's uh, go back to the albums. Let's listen to uh, the Groundhogs. And I said this is uh, from their third album that Andrew said the one that uh, made them big. Yeah. Called uh, Thank Christ for the Bomb. Thank Christ for the bomb. <laughs> I mean that—that's that—that was the Groundhogs, which uh, you put out. Their, their their third album, you said that you put out. Third album, that uh, was, yeah. very. Ex- I mean, loud as well. I mean, you were saying they were very loud live as well. Yeah, they, yeah, it got to be a very loud, powerful three-piece. I mean, it was, that's it: guitar, bass, drums. And, and I, I'm, and again, an, an example of you know you finding an artist and sticking with them and that sort of goes on a lot um, through your career so that was at United Artists but another thing as well that uh, there's a great bit in the book uh, um, where you say that you're often quoted as being the man that signed Can but but you don't really like to take credit for that because you just put their records out is that true? Uh, it was really there were two good guys in Germany the managing director of the German company was a guy called Siegfried Locke who'd been at Star Club before and he produced like the Searchers early records and yeah and and he was also into blues. He did a lot of the Lipman and Rye blues festivals and things like that. And a guy called Gerhard Augustin, who I became good friends with, who'd actually been to San Francisco and knew Bill Graham and, right. and in the early days, <coughs> and started uh, Beat Club, the the, the well-known yes. German thing. And he was uh, introduced the first, I think, three or four programmes. Yeah, before they replaced him with Dave Lee Travis. <laughs> <laughs> Really? And, wow. Uh, they, Harry Coldflake himself. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, they, we'd, they'd already signed Amandul 2. Yeah. And, and I was very enthusiastic about that, and I put it out. Phallus Day, he was, you know, any record called Phallus Day. Yeah, you've got to do that. Yeah, of course you are. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, and they said, well, we've actually got this other group that were keen, but it really needs you to be enthusiastic for it because they, 
they want to get to America and they think if, if they can have success <coughs> in the UK, that will help, help them get to America. Mm. So we can't really sign them without you, you know, right, okay. giving it a thumbs up from your end. So this record arrived and I, I think I had a lunch appointment, came back from lunch, probably had a few drinks, you know, mm. well, put, put this on. And it just took my head off. It was just like, what the hell is this? Mm. I thought it was, this was Monster Movie, which yes. is the first album. Because they had pressed up on their own label uh, a limited run of, of the album, and uh, which, you know, which was the one we ended up releasing. Mm. I think it was the same day Andy Dunkley, who was a friend, a DJ, came in and I said, you've got to hear this. You know, wow. Put it on, it was like, that's the best thing I've heard in years, you know. I've got to have... I'm doing a festival at the weekend. I've got to have this record. I said, oh, I haven't even signed them yet. I mean, I mean, so, you know, and then, of course, there's a whole slew of um, bands from Germany, Tangerine Dream, La Dusseldorf, and, you know, Nectar, yep. all sorts of bands that were, that were coming along and, you know, we're all doing very exciting things. But you were there just right at the beginning of all that, weren't you, when it, yeah. when it, when it wasn't really yeah. known as... I mean, I guess it was... Kind of was a scene because they were all German bands, but they kind of it was quite of a loose scene, wasn't it? Really? Yeah, and they were obviously they were all from different places. You know, Amundsen was was out of Munich, and and uh, you know the, the scene in Dusseldorf was different. And, mm. uh, but but um, so many of those bands, different people came up doing very different things. But it was all it wasn't American based. It, I think it was that generation that grew up after the war or were yeah. born during the war really wanted to try and establish a kind of new German thing. It was it was their thing rather than based on what was coming out of America particularly. Sure. But uh, And there was connections. There was a guy called Dave Anderson who was the bass player with Amon Duel, who was English, no. uh, ended up coming back to England and he was in Hawkwind for a bit. I think you got And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and has a studio in Wales and he's very friendly with Ian Gom from Brindisi Schwartz. All these oh, things connect just, up. Just gonna, well, I guess you always... We always end up hanging around like-minded people, don't we, I guess? Yeah, Andrew, I think so. so. I think that's yeah. what happens. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting how that genre of music uh, has just become, like, known all over the world now. And it's, you know, such a an important part yeah. of what people listen to. And uh, it's uh, interesting hearing uh, hearing your stories. Did you ever go over and see any of the bands in Germany? In or? Germany? I did. I used to go and stay at Gerhardt's flat and and, um, and also, you know, met other people I didn't necessarily involve with Popolvu and and, uh, and and obviously met with the guys in Amundur or And, and can uh, Ermin Schmidt and his wife actually manage the group. Right. Uh, Hildegard and uh, all the way through, so and they were great to deal with. Um, See, one, one of the things you have to remember is because Andrew's so modest, right? Yeah, <laughs> he may he may not sign those groups, but he put those records out. Whereas I think Kraftwerk and um, some of the other Tangerine Dream had albums out at that time, but they didn't get released here. Right, I think it wasn't until like '73, I think, and, and particularly when Virgin came on board and mm, started putting out Faust and, Faust and, yeah. and right, stuff like yeah. that. So. Um, I think it wasn't until then that I think Vertigo um, put a few records out, didn't they as well? Yeah, I was going to say, but I think I think Craftworks was were on Philips. Right. It wasn't until yes. Vertigo yeah. existed yeah. that they put the first two albums out as a double album on on Vertigo. Yeah. So, um, you know, another another NR man might have gone, geez, I'm not putting this out. You yeah. Know? Um, so I guess but, it's it, and, and you're right, Mick. It wasn't that Andrew literally didn't go out and find the band and sign them, but it, without you, there'd have been no presence. Yeah, in this you have country. to have them now. So you have to. Yeah. And I think that's, and that's yeah. interesting. What does come across in the book is that, you know, mm. this, 
this mythical A&R, what does it actually mean? Where does it come from? And I think what it is, um, having done a little bit of myself, some successfully and some not so successfully, but it's, it's, about, it's about enthusiasm and it's about being... I, I always felt when I was working with bands that I was successful with, I, I almost felt I was in the band because, yeah, you, because yeah. you're so close to them. Yeah, you do. You know, I, mean, and it's, I, I certainly did. You, know, you kind of almost projected yourself in, yeah. somehow into it. And uh, but 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 it was it, it was just being excited by the sound yeah. of something. And, and the German groups, I mean, Neu, I just thought it was a great record. Yeah, I didn't know. I was, think it was. Oh, it's going to be very influential. Or, you know. No, of course not. And um, so uh, that's why it came out really. And also, Andrew, it was so far removed from those sort of early those sort of early blues sounds of and sort of the the, the mod sounds of 1965 66 when you first arrive in london like here we are like three years later and you're putting out records by noi i mean how the, how the hell does that happen and that's that's a mad trajectory isn't it yeah it is yeah god knows how, <laughs> god knows how that happened <laughs> it did it did well let's um, let's have a listen to a track uh, from the from that can album a monster movie and now i want to talk to you about uh, record sleeves and um, oh, artwork yeah. because i think that's really important yeah. and of course uh, this album had great artwork yeah monster movie anyway this is a track from monster movie You're listening to Morning Glory here on Soul Radio, and I'm joined uh, by Andrew Lauder and Mick Houghton. Uh, we're celebrating the publication of uh, a book called Happy Trails, Andrew Lauder's Charmed Life and High Times in the Record Business. And um, Can, of course, you you were very famously put that record out back in, we think it was 1970, uh, but maybe yeah, 70, yeah, we think, think it was 1970. So, yeah. But one of the things I do want to talk to you about, uh, I, was, I said to myself, I must talk to Andrew about this, is your love of great um, artwork on records. And there's many bands I've worked with personally in the past who don't give a monkey's about the artwork, and other right. ones take it very, very seriously. And I don't understand why people don't take an interest in the artwork because it's such an important thing, isn't it? Yeah, I always thought it was important. As someone who used to buy and sort of collect records, the sleeve made a big difference. You know, it attracted you towards something you maybe didn't know that much about, but it looked really interesting. And I think you know you were. You got friendly with a couple of uh, designers. Well, you you say in in your book uh, that they were two of the best designers, if not the two of the best designers. You ended up sharing an office with in the sort of late nineteen seventies, early eighties, didn't you? Yeah, there was uh, that was Barney Bubbles and, and Malcolm Garrett, yeah. and uh, from two different eras. But but, but uh, Barney had sort of met in the late sixties, and he was very attracted to Hawkwind and became right. You know, almost a part of the band, really. I mean, the, the, the equipment was arranged in a particular way on stage, and the, everything was painted, you know, wow. with a specific design. And and he did all the booklets and all the the fantastic packaging. That there was you know, things that folded out twenty five yeah. different ways. And were they were they arranged in terms of their astrological signs? Yes, yes, they were, of course yeah. they were. Yeah. Of course, I, I, it's, it's, it's I don't it's know why. Why am I saying that? Yeah, of course, why, yeah, why are you saying that? Of course, they were designed like that. Yeah. And there was another artist you put out. I think it might have been, was it Man, where the sleeve folded out and it was a, a history of Wales? Yeah, it was on the, yes, it, it, it was a double fold-out record, a normal thing, but when it opened out, this sort of thing, a whole cartoon map of, of the Welsh rock scene. <laughs> 
was there with with everything you know who which bands came from where Amazing. and we, which was deliberate I, I sort of you know trying to get people directed towards man you know it's a, mm. can't say it's a great band yeah. it was like well they're great but they are welsh you know right okay and there's a whole thing happening out of welsh it's very welsh you know? yeah it's welsh welsh come on so come on did, wales we did play on that for a bit and then use the flag and in, the, in yeah. a bit the same way as leonard skinner would use the confederate flag of course. Or something. yeah so it was a deliberate thing but it it also you could bring in humor and which there was a help of man i mean there were funny people that were right. great bunch so it, it kind of represented you know how they got to where they got to and what yeah. they meant in the area and, and typical of man all the all the annotations in the history on, on the artwork were by Deke Leonard he wasn't in the band anymore right <laughs> yeah, so. fantastic well people would come and go you know, we never put out the same a record with the same lineup and well the, one of the interesting things about the book especially sort of the the mid 1970s when you're really on a roll you've you've got had a good sort of a good few years in the music business you kind of know what you're doing you you're running and i you try there's various other labels are trying to get you to go and work with them and this and that but you know the, the, the thing that goes along is that you just keep putting out these records and you're just so enthusiastic, enthusiastic. but what it is everybody seems to be interchangeable all the artists seem to be that guy was that bass player in there then he went to be there and then that guy was in that band and then she went to there it's just like it's just like i was i was reading the book once i was getting confused i was like who's in what band i don't know who's in what band anymore everybody's just chopping change but it felt like it was a good happy family of people that you were around you andrew at that time yeah it was i mean ua was was very happy time i mean everybody got on you know there wasn't like that sales manager you know yeah he was he was great and and he appreciated what I was doing. Martin, who was the managing director, was never ever told me, Don't I don't think we should do that, you know. And it was maybe I, you say you do uh, it's the singles, you know. Yeah. It was an exciting time and I guess there was it's a, a time when records were selling quite a lot as well, so everybody's quite safe in their jobs, I guess, and it was a very vibrant time. But then along comes punk rock, you know, and uh, I guess did punk rock shake it up as much as we are led to believe, Andrew? I, th I think it did. It's, you know, you're trying to develop a band um, in, in, a, in a orderly fashion, in a yeah. way, you know, and, and like a band called O uh, from Jersey, who were a great band. They'd actually been two albums on, on Epic, CBS Epic, and uh, they were managed by the same company or the same person that managed Man. Okay. Uh, so I put out the third album, and they were really developing nicely. You know, going up the built the roundhouse from, you know, yeah. up to the headline and, and building up a big following. But when punk came along, it it, it just forget it. You know, yeah. was, people weren't interested in booking them. Uh, it, it became obvious to any anyone's bright. So we're flogging a dead horse. Now. Yeah, I mean, you're you're associated with two big bands of the punk era, the Stranglers and the Buscocks, yeah. who uh, you signed both of those to United Artists. Both quite different bands, really, uh, I would say, both with that punk. Yeah. I think the interesting thing about the Stranglers is, I'm sure you'll explain this a lot better than I will, is that they were kind of around a long time before punk, but you knew that they would get lumped in with that punk scene, didn't you? So you had to, yeah. try, so you tried to market them in a certain way. And that, I mean, that sounds terrible. That sounds a very sort of 90s, naughty thing of marketing. I guess it wasn't that... But you want you you knew you had to tap into that punk thing with with uh, Stranglers, didn't you? Yeah, I mean it was a bit confusing at first because I was kind of thinking, how do we how do we fit this in? Because it's 
it's not part of the you know Sex Pistols, Malcolm McLaren sort of background, mm. and they were coming from a different place. And plus, they'd been playing around for a couple of years and and actually getting very tight, even with a bunch of lousy equipment. <laughs> but but it, that's what made the difference really. And also, you know, you looked at it and you know. The Sex Pistols looked like a punk band. Yes. and became the model and the. Clash I mean, I'm I'm, like I'm looking I'm looking at a picture now of the Stranglers, and they, apart from Jean Jacques Vanel and Hugh Cornwall to an extent, I mean the yeah. other two looked like what they were. They drove ice cream vans around, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they just looked like some some guys from the local pub, yeah. Yeah. which is fine. Yeah. So I mean, how did you? Well, that was the reason I was, I was you know took my time over kind of whether I wanted to do this because I kind of is this. Just, you know, where does it fit, you know? Mm. And it sounded a bit more like the doors or you know, the keyboards and sure. things. But, and, but, and the seeds. And the, the seeds, the seeds, seeds. Were particularly with the keyboards mm. again. And, um, but the, the thing was, they had loads of tunes. They had those first two albums, all, it was all written. So yeah, they, all ready to go. They went after the other, and after you'd seen them a couple of times, oh, I remember this one, this is quite... And they were catchy, you know, you could remember them and sing along with them. And Plus they had their... Sort of gang, the Finchley boys that were, the, right. you know, follow them everywhere. So it, it 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 was part of that punk thing, but it didn't fit in with the, you know, the the, the Susie and the Banshees and the, the Hundred Club. Yeah. You know, they so weren't a part of that. Did I was you uh, say sorry? Yeah, no, do, please. I, I wrote I wrote a review in Sounds where I actually said they ripped off the Doors keyboard and the and the the seed sound and and all their bass lines were ripped off from Love. Right. And next, <laughs> time I, next time I saw him at the Hope and Anchor, John Jack chasing me around the, the place with, the, with his corner with his bass trying to slap me. Well, I'm. I'm so I'm, they were punks. They were. <laughs> well, being as I said, being a little lad in in Halifax in West Yorkshire at the time, you read things about the Stranglers that they that they liked to get into fights and uh, yeah. and I think that thing that. Jean Jacques Bonnell was a black belt in karate. Was a thing that being a fifteen-year-old kid was just like, wow! He yeah. plays bass in a punk band and he does karate. It was yeah. like a superhero. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. amazing. Well, he, he's become a really, really good friend. Uh, lives twenty-five minutes away. Yeah, he's looking after my dog at the moment. <laughs> but, but he's a wonderfully loyal person. Very appreciative of uh, you know, anything that. And they couldn't get signed. I mean, basically, mm. no one else wanted to sign them at all. I mean, maybe they would have done. as a so kind of residual thing. Did you feel under? Then. Did you feel under pressure, Andrew, at the time to sign punk bands, or um, or did you just look, no, look, I don't really want to get lost. I don't want to get lost in this mad chase for whoever it is. You know. No, I think some. And I go, I'm not going to vote. It's not going to last. You know, they mm. can't play. You know, that sort of. Uh, um, but. It, it was too big. It was it was, it was going to have too much effect, and it had so much impetus going for it. And everybody, I you know, speak to journalists, and John Ingham was very much in there at the beginning, and they say, "No, this is, this is something happening here. You know, it needs to happen." Which I, I, I kind I, of felt I felt needed something to happen, even going back to the Flaming Groovies days. Sure, that, you know that we, apart from the MC5 and the Stooges, the kind of rock and roll element. Had, Gone, had gone, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, as as much as we, we like bands like Man and all that sort of stuff, that sort of yeah. that that visceral sort of high energy also, rock and roll had gone. Doctor Feelgood was, was yes, for me was you know this was 1974, so that was a thing where it really felt at last I've got a group that I really you know believe in. And again. I guess you know, yeah. I guess Doctor Feelgood, you have pub rock, you know, which is the uh, much much maligned pub rock, you know, because uh, but yeah. a lot of great artists. 
were there, you know, yeah. and, and played those those pubs yeah. and, and went on to bigger and better. Films. And it was actually it was Americans that started out because a group called Eggs Over Easy, right? Who had come to play here, and then I think that Brinsley's had seen them and thought these guys are pretty good. Yeah, yeah. and you were fed up with. Every time a record came out or a new group that was on the way up, it was like, well, who are we going to support on tour? Because that's, you know, we've got an audience. Yeah. Then you end up paying more and more and more money for using about 25% of the PA, you know, a bare minimum of lights. And unless you sort of become friends with the road crews, I mean, it doesn't matter how much money you paid, you, were, yeah. you weren't getting represented properly. Sure. And, you know, half the audience is in the bar. And uh, so we wanted to find a way of not going that route, and pub rock was yeah. the answer. We actually had a little agency in the in the record company. Oh, did you? Run by a Welshman who was a big Brinsley's fan called Martin Smith. Right. And uh, and also we used to bring in a country gazette from America, and uh, and book them out as well. Yeah. But the, the pub rock thing, we definitely. So this is this is the way we're going to go with this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, kind of, it's, kind of, it's kind of interesting with the pub rock thing, is that. It, it, you know, because it really did sort of take us into punk to some extent. That you look at you look at Brinsley Swartz, and you made six albums with them, and they just, in a way, you just didn't sell any records. Mm. But so, you know, but when when Nick, no, when Nick, you know, becomes a solo act and becomes involved in Stiff, and and the other guys become part of Graham Parker and Rumour, suddenly everyone realises how good Brinsley Swartz was. Um, but at the time, I think pub rock. Was quite damaging to a lot of bands, wasn't it? Because oh God, it, yeah. Know, I mean, yeah. I had two bands. So there was nowhere to go. The band called Owen, George yeah. Hatcher band was suddenly, uh, you know, just you know, the, literally there was nowhere to go. They were just stuck, and and they both, you know, particularly band called Owen realised it. So this is kind of pointless. You know. Well, okay. Well, I think what we're going to do, we could ramble on for ages talking about all this, but we're going to play. We're going to play a track from the first Stranglers album, which is uh, "You Chose Yourself, Andrew." Uh, just get a grip on yourself. <laughs> That's Buzzcocks, of course, with What Do I Get? Famously signed to United Artists by Andrew Lauder, who sat right opposite me. You know what that makes you think of, Andrew? When you first moved to London in 1965 and those great groups like The Who and that crazy scene, that mod scene and that high-energy R&B scene, the Buzzcocks are not a million miles away from that, are they, really? No, not really. Uh, I think that was the energy was the, with, with punk rock was, was, was part of why it was so appealing. You know, it was kind of like, you know, that people, whether, how good they were as musicians didn't really matter anymore. It was like, God, these guys, you know, they really mean it. And, and uh, Buzzcocks was, you know, you never think of them as being great, fantastic musicians, but, but the end product was great. Yeah. yeah, it must have been very exciting working with them. And so was it a real mad, mad rush to sign the Buzzcocks or was you? There got to be in the end, because I, I, having signed the Stranglers, I think I've got, you know, room for another one, but who would I want to work with? And, Anyway, I had conversations with Susie and the Banshees, and uh, but I really wanted a, 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 a northern band, you know, right. coming as we do from, yeah, from to the north. north yeah. And um, Buscocks were for Manchester, so I, you know, and the, and I loved that EP, the one with, yeah. with Howard Devoto was still in the band. Were you a bit disappointed that Howard had gone, or, or was that? Well, initially I was, cause yeah, like, of course, because you know, he, he had a distinctive voice and mm. you know he had a, a presence. But he was actually at that point he'd become the joint manager. Oh, really? Called, uh, Howard Trafford. 
So it was uh, Howard I dealt with in signing the Buscocks. And then rather than Richard Boone. Richard was involved as well, but Howard was the kind of front man in a way. And then as we went on and put out the first record, it just dealt with, with Richard. And, and Howard was starting to put together a magazine at that point. Mm. So he'd already got this other idea in, in his head. But I went up to the Electric Circus to see him for the first time, and, and it was a great bill that night. started with a group called The Worst. They were aiming to be The Worst. The Worst, and, fantastic. And uh, the second one was, was a group that had been called Stiff Kittens, it was the first gig as Warsaw, I think. Who then became Joy Division. Then became Joy Division. And do you, um, uh, do, you re- do you remember Warsaw at all? Do you remember them? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Was yeah. it terrible? Uh, it, it was iffy. It had some really good moments. Yeah. I, you know, we did have a conversations later when it became Joy Division um, about doing a label with Martin Russian called Genetic, right. and I thought they'd be great on that situation. And they came down and did Hope and Anchor. I think it was you know about three men and a dog. I think. It was, wow. You know. <clears throat> but uh, and that other the bill after after them was John Cooper Clark, which was a bit when I it's like a poet next. You know, you're <laughs> kidding. Weirdos. Kill him. You know, this is a punk audio. And then he was fantastic. Yeah, of know, course. Yeah. Never seen a nipple in the Daily Express and yeah. on you went. And then Penetration was the second, right. second bill. Okay. Over from Newcastle. Yeah. Um, but I think Virgin were already, you know, talking to them at that point. And, and the Buzzcocks were fantastic that night. They were great. I mean, it's... Slightly so different line because they had a different bass player because they, you know, moved things around when, when Howard... I mean, I'm, I'm kind of of a generation. I know in the book you say that you're often known as the man that signed Cannon. There's various other things, and you're known for working with the Stone Roses as well, which we probably won't get into later, but it's well worth reading in the book, everybody. But for me, you'll always be the person that signed... The Buzzcocks, because they were such an important band for me. And when yeah. I when I first met you in the mid nineties, you were the person that signed the Buzzcocks. And I think, yeah. I guess, I guess, I guess, how old you are yourself is what how people would uh, look at you in terms of you're the one that brought Man to them, or you're the one that yeah. brought Creedence Clearwater Revival or Buzzcocks. You know, it's yeah, yeah, interesting. I think it? so. And uh, but I uh, had a, the only that was the only bit of a battle as well that CBS decided after the success that had with The Clash, that they wanted to sign another punk band as well. Mm. And uh, I think even the day I was on the train going up to see them with the contracts, because yeah. uh, they were doing the the, the, uh, the same venue again, and um, that, you know, CBS were on the phones, kind of said, well, we'll up the advance, we'll pay you more money, and we'll do this, and we'll do that. Mm. Uh, and they were very, you know, loyal, and said, no, we, we want to be with the guy that worked with, the, with Cam. Perfect, know? brilliant. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, which I didn't know till later, but, no, which great. is why I felt really bad when I, you know, a few months later, so you had to left, leave the company. So yeah, so you, you, you United Artists, very, very, and there you are. You just signed Buscocks and Stranglers, and they're, they're going off and went off to have great success. But you up sticks and started a label called Radar. Yeah, we found out that um, United Artists was going to get sold, and it was going to be bought by EMI. And and once you that you know that's going to a it's going to happen and b they're just going to suck it into the into the EMI corporate machine you know, as it was at the time. Yeah. <clears throat> and I didn't want to work for EMI, and uh, nor did the, the managing director. Right. So we thought at this point, you know, we're, we're, we've got a good reputation. We could probably do a deal with someone else and have our own company. Which you did. So, which WEA 
put up the money and it, we did a 50-50 company with myself and Martin Davis and, and WA in the UK to start a, a separate sort of independent company but yeah. obviously it was and part a, of a corporation. a whole load of great records you put out on Radar including the pop group and of course Nick, you put out Nick Lowe records who you've known since the Brinsley's days and it's a whole another part, another chapter in your life unfortunately we've run out of time so we're not even going to have to talk about that but please right. dear listener go and read this book uh, buy it, beg, borrow or steal it Happy Trails, Andrew Lauder's Charmed Life and High Times in the Record Business uh, written and told by Andrew Lauder to Mick Houghton over several phone calls and uh, it's all in there there's more to go, there's Elvis Costello there's a, the whole debacle about the Stone Roses but one thing that comes through Andrew is your undying love and faith of music and I want to thank you for that because uh, if everybody took a leaf out of your book then the world would be a better place we're going to finish uh, with Pump It Up by Elvis Costello I want to thank you for coming in Andrew it's been an absolute pleasure Uh, Mick as always I will see you in a field in Oxfordshire in a few weeks time Uh, we will talk at length about (laughs) Andrew when he's not there (laughs) Um, you look after yourselves guys thanks